forward. There are over 4 million working-aged blind and visually impaired people in the United States. And over 2 million of these people are unemployed. This is a staggering statistic, but many people defy these odds and are happily and gainfully employed, and we wish to share their stories with the world. Hello and welcome to Vision Toward Success the podcast that highlights stories of career development and lived experience. This podcast is brought to you by the Polis Center for Social and Economic Development. In our program, we feature employment success stories from visually impaired individuals for people with disabilities and their allies, in hopes of showing just how smart, hardworking, and capable this diverse community is. Hello and welcome to Vision Towards Success. My name is David Gonzalez and here with me is our guest Stephen Theberge, a published science fiction writer and ADA compliance tester for the Massachusetts Bay Transit Authority. Now we will hear from myself and our guest Stephen Theberge. Hello Stephen, my name is David Gonzalez and I am working with the Tradeswind Project. And our goal is mainly focused on interviewing low blind and totally blind individuals on what they do for work and their success toward it. Um, do you mind introducing yourself and tell us what you do for work? Do ADA compliance testing for the MBTA commuter rail. I also do web testing because I'm a published author, science fiction author. Losing my vision recently, I was always interested in accessibility and technologies that made things more accessible, really, since I was young. So I've, I've seen the growth of the technology over the years. And with the Americans with Disabilities Act and having more of a voice, I thought it was important to be part of that. I've seen in your biography that you have received a bachelor's degree in English literature. Uh, do you mind telling me about that? Yeah, it was... Um, they called it the creative writing, although we did more reading than writing. And I, I was just always interested in, well, basically what happened was when I was in computer science as well, I was wondering, I just basically thought that I could do another major, especially when the computer science professors were, in the beginning, I wasn't doing too well because in those days they didn't have a lot of accommodations. And he, my, my advisor said, why don't you switch majors and major in something like English? And rather, and I got kind of really mad. I finished the computer science. I said, oh, I'll, sh I'll show him. I'll major in English as well. So that, that kind of motivated me to be double major. And I said, I, I may as well double major instead of just taking electives. And it worked out. Relating to your own business or other companies that you have worked for in the past, what do you consider your professional strengths are that you would acquire to the workplace? I would say I'm persistent and resilient. I like to... Um, explore all options. I don't do so much my own business now, but it has helped me with writing and helped me be more self-motivated, I think. And I 
I work well with teams and I also, but I'm also um, self-motivated. So where I don't really need a lot of people pushing me and I think I motivate others by example. And uh, how would you define that? Well, I, I just tell people, like they say, how did you manage to write a book? And I said, well, it's just something it's, you really want to do it. You just do it. I don't, there's really no formula. It's just, it's the motivation. That's where I'm stuck on my third book. I've been, I think the COVID didn't help with that because the last year has been crazy anyway, but generally it's motivation. Based on your business that you've partaken in the past, do you mind elaborating on it? No, um, I think in at the time it was the computer industry was very young and there were a lot of self-starters out there. You know, you could do it individually. Um, it was a wonderful time. I think I, you know, like I, leaving school and, but I think when we started getting into the 21st century, a lot of the companies started going, you know, groupware and it's a good thing for like mass production. Like it's, it's really helped like with Apple, you know, accessibility. But in the old days, it was really, there were no standards. So it's kind of a, it's catch 22, like have, having the big companies, you kind of have monopolies in a way. But on the other hand, you know, you have some standards, Microsoft, you know, Apple, I guess Google to a point. So, but it, but in the beginning, it, we, you could really, I really had these, thought I could really make an impact and a lot of people did, and there were a lot of self upstarts, and I think that's where my motivation came from. It's like I, can, I actually can make a difference. Um, but then, of course, when the you know, kind of like the story of most businesses, is the big companies take over, which there's very little room for self starters. I don't think in accessibility. I'm I'm sure some people are doing it, but I think now with the big companies kind of have. But it's it's also good with with the collaboration because it is more teamwork. Where when I was starting out, there were so many options for accessibility. There weren't really any standards. What was your thought process on connecting computer science and English literature to your business? Well, I, people have often asked me that, and I, I always, there was always the stereotypical, you know, computer geek, scientist, and not able to connect, the, like, the human side. I've often often been asked that, and they say, how did... That's an interesting combination, and I'm like, not really. It's it's just two sides to the an equation. So the you know the science, the, the technical, and the you know you see that in business. Everyone wants to collaborate, kind of have you know emotional intelligence or conversational intelligence. There's there's more of a focus on business. I think not so much when probably when I was in school, but it's becoming a normal thing to say. You know, we're going to get in touch with people. On the on the level of not just being a business or having a skill, but also having a relationship, you know, teamwork and relationship as much as you can in business. I've also seen that you've attended uh, Perkins School for the Blind, and I've also wanted to know uh, what really opened doors for you while you were attending the school. Um, it was it was really prepared me academically as far as having the skills to, to go out to college. I don't think I would have got that in public school back then. I, I understand it's not, I guess it depends where, which city you're from, but, you know, they talk about mainstreaming and there are good experiences that people have, but in my, you know, where I grew up, it wasn't really an option. So I, I felt Perkins really prepared me 
as a well-rounded being academic. And I think they gave me that persistence and they kind of didn't settle on, you know, mediocrity. They wanted to be, insist that you did your best. If you knew you do, you did your best and it, nothing else mattered. Has your peers and teachers motivated you over time while you were attending the school? Um, yeah, well, it was kind of, actually, I don't know how I did it. It was kind of very, you know, you would put, they had a bunch of terms and I actually wouldn't want to do it now, but it, it was just, it was basically taking yourself away from a work of literature on the emotional level and say, well, this is, this, this is kind of technique is being used like foreshadowing, like, you know, that characters talking about if they're going to die in the future. That's foreshadowing. They had a whole bunch of terms and then the poetry, they had a bunch of different, like from meter and a very dry thing, but it also like, you, but it did help in terms of like, when you read literature later, you say, oh, they're using this technique. And I don't really remember a lot of the but I can see different styles of literature and, but the biggest part of the analytical writing was like when we would read something, the professor is like, I don't care if you like it or not. We're not here to, it's not like a, some of those classes where you're like, oh, I liked it or I didn't like it. But to discuss the, the different um, techniques they use in literature, you know, like like on similes or in poetry, different iambic pentameter. Um, it got really, it got really into the terminology. There were bunches of them. And, it does help when, when you, you know, because you see like older literature and different styles. So it just gives you, an, I think, an idea of like how to read certain things. Like sometimes people say, well, I can't, I don't understand because you don't, they're trying to detect some things that deliberately done in a certain way. So it, it was um, interesting, but I don't do that anymore. I mean, I, I can, but I, I, I don't really know if it, helped me or not. I mean, it did in a lot of ways, but I, I can't imagine like sitting down and analyzing a piece of literature like I used to in college. It's like, I just, now I do care. I just, do I like it or don't I like it? But it was interesting, like more on the technical stuff. I think that's probably that case. But, but basically the bottom line was just to see like what, what goes into making that literature or that work. Was there a specific software that you have created that totally blind and visually impaired individuals can use? Yeah, it was um, developed for stiff text-to-speech output system, and it, it wouldn't be, you know, that's when they had um, DOS on the old PCs. You t basically, everything was typed commands. And then the first Windows came out, and I started to develop software for that, but then... Like I was saying, a lot of things moved really fast, so it was really hard to keep up with the technology, and things also got more expensive. You know, with the bigger companies, you have to spend a lot more money on software development tools. So, but it was it was really good in the at the time because you could really make a difference. But but like I said, there was there was no real standardization. You know, it was kind of like there were a lot a lot of options in, at the in the time, and it, that's why it was really hard to make an impact. I know I did help a lot of people, but it didn't. It didn't really last very long in the software. I think it's on a. Um, I have a external hard drive that died, so it's on there, but I, I don't have access to it. But like I said, it wouldn't be. It wouldn't be usable with the modern technology anyway that we have now. 
Would you mind explaining your position as working at the uh, Massachusetts Bay Authority in the past? What, what I do is it's it's the public transportation. They have subways, buses, um, commuter rail trains, um, ferries. I, I basically am paired with an observer, and the observer basically takes a lot of the like bus number and the times of boarding and leaving. And I basically do a checklist, like if they're doing adopt announcements. Um, so this is all for the Americans with Disabilities Act compliance. Um, then they, you know, like if they deploy the ramp, um, if you ask for priority seating. So there's there's a lot of rules and checklists that you go through. And it's like if there's violations, you know, if they didn't announce the stops, which they're supposed to, you you know, you do a report, you know, the time and where, what stops they missed. Or, or on the subway, it's if the automated stops weren't working. So it's basically just doing a checklist and pretty much getting paid to ride on the public transportation. And you, I never realized how much of us, how much they cover on the Massachusetts Bay. I mean, they cover a lot of areas. They have hundreds of bus routes. And so it's basically ensuring that they're following the Americans with Disabilities Act. Because what happened is that it was, um, they were, they were sued. They were brought on litigation in the early 2000s. So now they're, it was, it was more just for compliance rather than like monetary. So they've, they've committed to keep accessibility without having being threatened. So it, so it paid off in the sense that they're really, they're really working to make things accessible and to keep them as accessible as they can. You know, there are a lot of audible announcements. Throughout school and your work ethic, what would you say the biggest struggles you face were in the past and how did you overcome them? Well, I, th I think the hardest part is knowing when you need help and when you, like in the, in the beginning of the school, I didn't really, well, I had more vision then, but now I don't have anything, but I, I didn't realize I needed to ask for help because that, you know, when I went to Perkins school, you know, it was, all, you know, everyone was visually impaired or blind. So I wasn't really prepared to advocate for myself, but I, now it's more over time you just learn that you just have to speak up and you have to learn to be patient with people because a lot of people get a lot of i've noticed people get upset and they're like they should know better and they get angry at other people and i just don't have the time anyway to you know it's a lot of energy being wasted that way and i'd rather just be patient and it's not always easy but just to educate and say okay they don't they really don't know maybe they should know but so it, you, you have to learn patience and persistence and also that there are a lot of people who will advocate for you, but it's really, you're kind of always on your own doing it, especially day-to-day -day stuff. You know, you can have disability things and events and awareness days, but for the most part, you know, you, you just have to go on every day. And the biggest part of it to me is making it as, normal as possible without making the disability um, a big focus. I mean, I can't hide it, but I try to show it I'm as I'm normal as possible, but that also means that sometimes I'm going to have to ask for help. So, you know, sometimes I do get lost in park. I do get mixed up and get stuck in parking lots. So I'm going to need help or somebody's going to rescue me. But, and also I think a part, a big part of it is not to be, so hard on yourself because I mean I, we all want to be independent, 
And when we screw up, we're like, oh, I should be better. I've done this all my life. And so it's human nature. You know, you're like, oh, you know, nobody likes to make mistakes. But it, I think the, hard, the hardest part is to not take it so personally and just, just move on to the next the next one because you're going to make another one. So, But it's also worth it when you have your successes. So you just have to keep motivated. Getting back to writing, what would you say from an author's point of view your overall perspective was while writing? Well, I thought for me the biggest thing I could do was, yeah, I read a lot of, you know, I said especially if I want to write science fiction, but I read a lot of the classic science fiction. But I, I read a lot of, I think the more you read, I don't. it doesn't matter what kind of writer you are, you're going to be a better writer just by reading more. You know, I, I'll read almost anything, you know, mysteries, um, romance, you know, it depends. I, it depends what mood I'm in. But I, th- I think that if as an author, you really have to read something, you know, not it's not that you're copying, but you're seeing different what kind of. So I guess I guess the analytical writing did help in the sense that I, I know different styles and I'm able to figure out what I want to do. But even if you don't really need, you know, they I always say this, too. I never even though I took the right um literature and create a writing track you don't nobody can really teach you you're either a good writer or you're not i mean you could go to school all your life and you can learn techniques but i think writing is something that's an inborn talent it's like musicians people are musically gifted and going to school isn't a bad idea but i think i would tell people well i didn't go to school for that and a lot of writers didn't go to school for that um a lot of well-known writers famous writers didn't go to school for writing and they were successful how has when we were in the peak of uh, covid-19 how has uh, work life changed for you i really couldn't get out we couldn't really go out in the field like doing that for the mbta in massachusetts bay transit because you know the pandemic and nobody was going out so i i wasn't doing a lot of work then um but on but on in terms of the web testing i could do that from home and in some ways, the remote has actually showed everyone, not just people with disabilities, that there are a lot of things you can do that you don't have to go to the office for. Even companies now, even though we're going back to the normal, more or less, are saying, well, we, we can save resources by hybrids. And a lot, of, a lot of people are doing the hybrid route. So it's really an interesting but that that's kind of interesting too because you have the thing the hardest part in the beginning was getting that self motivation to do you know when you had a schedule you you kind of were like oh you're going if you're going to work you know you have to get up go and take the bus or whatever but when you're home you're kind of like well you have to kind of force yourself so in, in the beginning it was like kind of hard to get that mindset I think a lot of people had that struggle. While transitioning from school to work, have you had any inspirational influences that are doing exactly what you were doing now that influenced you in your past? Um, I can't really think of any specific individuals, but you know, there were there were always people that you know you're like you kind of aspire. I don't think in the beginning I had as too many examples. I think I have more examples now of people that I look up to and I say, oh, this is going to keep me motivated. 
but when I was transitioning from school, no, I don't think I had I had any real role models. So I was kind of self, had to be pretty much self motivated. It probably would have helped, but yeah, not so much in the beginning. For anyone trying to get into the field of analytical writing, what advice would you give them due to your past experience? Well, I would just say it's it's a matter of keeping persistence, um, getting a, a study schedule. I mean, I think that's for any any course of study, but just having that, setting that time aside and, you know, waiting setting your goals so that you can, you know, work first, you know, and then play later, I guess, you know, because a lot of people are like, oh, it's, and just be prepared for a lot of, a lot of hours of work. I mean, it, because there was a lot of reading. Okay. And for my final question, um, what would you say your motivational drive was? Uh, why did you want to pursue this that you're going for what made you get out of bed to you know still strive to continue doing this well because i know there's going to be successes you know sometimes it's delayed gratification um it's like you know the first two books the first book was you know awesome and people were like you're gonna write another one and i was like i wasn't thinking of it and then i wrote started doing the second one and right after the second one was published i started writing the third and i'm stuck on that but I know I will finish it. Um, well, writing's a little different unless you're writing like on a timeline. We, you really don't want to force yourself because it won't be good writing. But work in general, I just say you know you're gonna you're gonna have success either moving up in the career or having good days. Like when I was doing the transportation work, you know you you know you made a difference when you're c- c- catching violations, and you know it's gonna help improve things and just remembering what the goal what your goals are in that is going to help well thank you steven so much for taking time to you know do this interview with me and i'm really glad i got to hear your advice and perspective on you know visual awareness and what really stood out to me was your you know when you were describing your path towards success, how you didn't need no one there, you know, for motivation, you were able to do it on your own, you know, you had the mindset to just go along with it and just follow your path. And I really admire that. Um, so thank you again. Um, and that's all the questions that I have. And I'll be turning it over to the round table. Hello and welcome back to Vision Toward Success. My name is David Gonzalez and here with me is our guest Stephen Feeberge, a published science fiction writer and ADA compliance tester for the Massachusetts Bay Transit Authority. The Americans with Disabilities Act was signed on July 26, 1990, which prohibits discrimination against people with disabilities in employment transportation, accommodations, and beyond. We had a chance after Stephen's interview to further discuss his role at the MBTA. This includes digital accessibility, including access to schedules and making sure that the MBTA website is usable for people 
using assistive technology. He also addresses physical accessibility at transit stations through features like auditory announcements. Living with a disability is an individualized experience and we all have different ways of expressing our needs. Unfortunately, the sighted community lacks a full understanding of how best to interact with people with vision loss. Many people rely on stereotypes about blindness rather than asking an individual what they need. How we react to people's perception of us can reinforce those stereotypes. Stephen notes that how we present ourselves can make a lasting impression on the people we encounter. We have the power to choose how we react, much like creating an accessible website. Stephen notes that education is more powerful when given proactively rather than reactively. Well, I, I basically try to personalize it rather than making, I mean, I do say, you know, I can't see and sometimes I get sick of reiterating it, but, and I need to stop announcements. So more than the ableism is, it just amazes me how people will say, you know, it's over there or, and I'm like, well, I don't, I can't see. And I just have to, I think that's a struggle, but I, I think just explaining to the people in public, you know, the bus drivers that, you know, we need these accommodations. And I think it's had, being out there has improved it in terms of visibility because because they kind of know they're on watch, as you'd say. But um, some people, no, you can't can't do anything about it. You're not going to be able to change them. And, all, and it's easy to get angry, but it, it's just people that just sometimes are like, wow, I, I just, I'm not going to... I'm banging my, I'm up against a brick wall here. Always one bad apple somewhere or a couple. But I, th I think it's how you present yourself. If you present yourself as angry and that assumptions that, oh, they're, they're wrong. They don't, yeah, they might not understand. But if you come in at it where you're saying, um, you know, it's not accessible and we're going to sue you because your website's inaccessible. You're going to be, you're going to get defensive. People are going to get defensive. And so when I, like with website accessibility, I, I don't, I think we should be educating people before they develop websites rather than coming in because it's hard to fix later and saying, oh, you're in violation of the Americans with Disabilities Act. So we're going to take you to court and the lawyers get a lot of money. And sometimes the people that do that for, as work is, get money, but it's setting a bad example. I, I think we should just be having conversations and I think I think the problem is I don't know if it, it I see it with you know other things like racism you, you know you come in making assumptions about the other side you're going to have a bad relationship. We also spoke to Stephen about his experience as a science fiction author. He feels that he is able to connect with other people through his writing in a way that is more personal. While he is confident and his ability to communicate effectively through verbal interactions, he enjoys the opportunity to articulate his thoughts through his writing. Stephen notes that his ability to communicate in written form has also improved his professional communication skills, which has earned him praise from his colleagues. 
I do tell people, like, write what you know. You know, I mean, science fiction now is kind of off the wall, but I I write characters from based on people I knew or... So I'm, I'm not going to write about something I know nothing about. And I think, I mean, it, it sounds so cliche, but it, it's you, you basically have to write what you have particular knowledge about. I mean, yeah, you can change it in fiction in all kinds of ways, but it has helped me communicate. I mean, pe people have told me, you know, writing minutes for me, and that's what's the best minutes I ever saw. And I said, that, that wasn't even work for me. I said, you just haven't had a secretary for two years. And so, but they're like, oh, no, but this is the best I've seen. And that's kind of kind of humbling to me. It's like, I don't, I don't I mean, success in terms of, I, I'm really not successful in terms, you know, financially, but like, like my editors told me, you know, don't expect to make a living off your writing. So it really is for the love of it. But just having being published, which is a lot easier now with, um, you know, self-publishing. But I, I do think it helps you communicate better, more. I probably do write better than I speak. But usually when I speak, I, I speak on the fly. So I might say like, well, but I don't write like that. And I don't say but all the time. I get more self-conscious speaking than writing. Although if I was given questions ahead of time, I, but then again, I'd probably be nervous. Like, I hope I answer these right. So I think I think there is a difference because you were saying like communication is um, oral communication and written communication kind of a little different. Although I, I do write like I speak, but I can clean it up all the ums and likes, you know. <laughs> Stephen acknowledges that having a support system plays a very important role in his life. A strong community consists of a mix of people with and without disabilities. He acknowledges that there is power in giving and receiving support, and that is having a sense of community serves as a source of inspiration and motivation in his professional and personal life. Each individual is unique and has their own strengths and life experiences. Throughout our life's journey, we grew in understanding of our blindness identity and what tools and skills we need to live independently. Stephen notes that having a space to share our experiences and how we live with blindness is a crucial element to one's journey. I get support from others and I can give support to others and set an example as far as, you know, motivating others and showing that there might be other attitudes rather than you know, because people are like, how, how can you do that? And I, I can just come from my side of it. And so it, it is definitely works both where you're giving, giving and getting support. I, I think that's the main thing. You, you can rely on others for support in different situations, depending on what the different, you know, there's different ability. Everyone has something to bring to the table. While blindness is a part of our identity, it is not our sole identity. Through our daily lives, we gain a greater understanding of who we are and acquire the skills we need to live a meaningful and well-rounded life. Stephen explains that we may need certain accommodations to complete everyday tasks, not to have things done for us, but to have the tools we need to live and work independently. While our journey can be challenging at times, we should always remain persistent. As we grow and discover what blindness means to us, 
those around us will better be able to recognize that vision loss is not our sole identity and that we live as rich and fulfilling a life as anyone else. Stephen adds, it may show how we do things, but if we know who we really are, no opinion matters. It's up to you to decide who you want to be, and that will define your outcome towards success. It doesn't define us, and yet we can't, you know, I, I know a lot of people say, oh, well, I, I don't know, blindness, I'm, I happen to be a person who happens to be blind, which is true, but it, it does identify how we do things. I mean, we, I'm not going to be driving, so be persistent. It doesn't, regardless of what your ability, disability, or I don't know, differently able, whatever you want to call it, find your strengths, find what you're good at have other people's feedback and go from there and just just live life don't don't worry so much about limitations or labels we'd like to thank steven for his time and being here with us today thank you for tuning into vision towards success with your host david gonzalez and our guest steven theberge you can reach steven at s 20 at gmail.com that is S T H E B E R G E two zero at gmail.com. And now a blindness tip from Stephen Theberge. Be persistent. It doesn't, regardless of what your ability, disability, or I don't know, differently able, whatever you want to call it, have other people's feedback and go from there and just, just live life. Find your strengths, find what you're good at. Don't don't worry so much about limitations or labels. Thank you for tuning in to Vision Towards Success. This program has been recorded and produced by Elena Regan and David Gonzalez from the Tradeswin Audio Podcast Team in association with the Polis Center for Social and Economic Development. Funding for this program has been provided by the Libby Duvon Award from the Fielding Institute, the Massachusetts Commission for the Blind, and the Barry Savings Foundation. Additional episodes of this podcast can be found at www.polacenter.org backslash tradeswin or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>